This is Chapter Twenty Two of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter Twenty Two. It was the end of August, and the skies were cloudless and the weather superb. In two or three weeks I had grown wonderfully fascinated with the curious new country, and concluded to put off my return to the States a while. I had grown well accustomed to wearing a damaged slouch-hat, blue woolen shirt, and pants crammed into boot-tops, and gloried in the absence of coat, vest, and braces. I felt rowdyish and bully, as the historian Josephus phrases it, in his fine chapter upon the destruction of the temple. It seemed to me that nothing could be so fine and so romantic. I had become an officer of the government, but that was for mere sublimity. The office was a unique sinecure. I had nothing to do, and no salary. I was private secretary to His Majesty the Secretary, and there was not yet writing enough for two of us. So Johnny K. and I devoted our time to amusement. He was the young son of an Ohio nabob, and was out there for recreation. He got it. We had heard a world of talk about the marvelous beauty of Lake Tahoe, and finally curiosity drove us thither to see it. Three or four members of the brigade had been there and located some timber lands on its shores, and stored up a quantity of provisions in their camp. We strapped a couple of blankets on our shoulders and took an axe apiece and started, for we intended to take up a wood ranch or so ourselves and become wealthy. We were on foot. The reader will find it advantageous to go horseback. We were told that the distance was eleven miles. We tramped a long time on level ground, and then toiled laboriously up a mountain about a thousand miles high and looked over. No lake there. We descended on the other side, crossed the valley, and toiled up another mountain three or four thousand miles high, apparently, and looked over again. No lake yet. We sat down tired and perspiring, and hired a couple of Chinamen to curse those people who had beguiled us. Thus refreshed, we presently resumed the march with renewed vigor and determination. We plodded on two or three hours longer, and at last the lake burst upon us. A noble sheet of blue water lifted six thousand three hundred feet above the level of the sea, and walled in by a rim of snow-clad mountain peaks that towered aloft full three thousand feet higher still. It was a vast oval, and one would have to use up eighty or a hundred good miles in traveling around it. As it lay there, with the shadows of the mountains brilliantly photographed upon its still surface, I thought it must surely be the fairest picture the whole earth affords. We found the small skiff belonging to the brigade boys, and without loss of time set out across a deep bend of the lake toward the landmarks that signified the locality of the camp. I got Johnny to row, not because I mind exertion myself, but because it makes me sick to ride backwards when I am at work. But I steered. A three-mile pull brought us to the camp just as the night fell, and we stepped ashore very tired and wolfishly hungry. In a cache among the rocks we found the provisions and the cooking utensils, and then, all fatigued as I was, I sat down on a boulder and superintended while Johnny gathered wood and cooked supper. Many a man who had gone through what I had would have wanted to rest. It was a delicious supper, hot bread, fried bacon, and black coffee. It was a delicious solitude we were in, too. Three miles away was a sawmill and some workmen, 
but there were not fifteen other human beings throughout the wide circumference of the lake. As the darkness closed down, and the stars came out and spangled the great mirror with jewels, we smoked meditatively in the solemn hush, and forgot our troubles and our pains. In due time we spread our blankets in the warm sand between two large boulders, and soon fell asleep, careless of the procession of ants that passed in through rents in our clothing and explored our persons. Nothing could disturb the sleep that fettered us, for it had been fairly earned, and if our consciences had any sins on them, they had to adjourn court for that night, anyway. The wind rose just as we were losing consciousness, and we were lulled to sleep by the beating of the surf upon the shore. It is always very cold on that lake shore in the night, but we had plenty of blankets and were warm enough. We never moved a muscle all night, but waked at early dawn in the original positions, and got up at once thoroughly refreshed, free from soreness, and brimful of friskiness. There is no end of wholesome medicine in such an experience. That morning we could have whipped ten such people as we were the day before—sick ones, at any rate—but the world is slow, and people will go to water-cures and movement-cures, and to foreign lands for health. Three months of camp life on Lake Tahoe would restore an Egyptian mummy to his pristine vigor, and give him an appetite like an alligator. I do not mean the oldest and driest mummies, of course, but the fresher ones. The air up there in the clouds is very pure and fine, bracing and delicious. But why shouldn't it be? It is the same the angels breathe. I think that hardly any amount of fatigue can be gathered together that a man cannot sleep off in one night on the sand by its side. Not under a roof, but under the sky. It seldom or never rains there in the summer-time. I know a man who went there to die. But he made a failure of it. He was a skeleton when he came, and could barely stand. He had no appetite, and did nothing but read tracts and reflect on the future. Three months later he was sleeping out of doors regularly, eating all he could hold three times a day, and chasing game over mountains three thousand feet high for recreation. And he was a skeleton no longer, but weighed part of a ton. This is no fancy sketch, but the truth. His disease was consumption. I confidently commend his experience to other skeletons. I superintended again, and as soon as we had eaten breakfast we got in the boat and skirted along the lake shore about three miles and disembarked. We liked the appearance of the place, and so we claimed some three hundred acres of it and stuck our notices on a tree. It was yellow pine timberland, a dense forest of trees a hundred feet high and from one to five feet through at the butt. It was necessary to fence our property, or we could not hold it. That is to say, it was necessary to cut down trees here and there, and make them fall in such a way as to form a sort of enclosure, with pretty wide gaps in it. We cut down three trees apiece, and found it such heart-breaking work that we decided to rest our case on those. If they held the property, well and good. If they didn't, let the property spill out through the gaps and go. It was no use to work ourselves to death merely to save a few acres of land. Next day we came back to build a house, for a house was also necessary in order to hold the property. We decided to build a substantial log house and excite the envy of the brigade boys, but by the time we had cut and trimmed the first log it seemed unnecessary to be so elaborate, and so we concluded to build it of saplings. However, two saplings, duly cut and trimmed, compelled the recognition of the fact that a still modester architecture would satisfy the law, and so we concluded to build a brush-house. We devoted the next day to this work, 
but we did so much sitting around and discussing that by the middle of the afternoon we had achieved only a half-way sort of affair, which one of us had to watch while the other cut brush, lest, if both turned our backs, we might not be able to find it again. It had such a strong family resemblance to the surrounding vegetation. But we were satisfied with it. We were landowners now, duly seized and possessed, and within the protection of the law. Therefore we decided to take up our residence on our own domain, and enjoy that large sense of independence which only such an experience can bring. Late the next afternoon, after a good long rest, we sailed away from the brigade camp with all the provisions and cooking utensils we could carry off—borrow is the more accurate word—and just as the night was falling we beached the boat at our own landing. End of chapter 22